0: Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. Stay tuned after the show for the big announcement the results of the poll, your choice for the topic of series 12. The current series is The History of Girlhood, and this is the final episode 11.13 The Discovery of Teenagers. You might not think that teenagers needed discovering. After all, people have been turning 13 for a very long time. But for most of human history, there was nothing special about that. Ancient writers divided the human life into anywhere from three to seven stages, and none of them corresponded with the group we call teenagers. Depending on which writer you prefer, childhood ended anywhere from age 14 to age 17, and it was followed by the next stage, which lasted until age 22, 25, 28, 30, 33, or 46. That stage was variously called youth or adolescence, again, depending on which writer you prefer. Personally, I prefer Sirius Tullius, who still classifies me as a youth because I am under 46. Of course, all of these writers were primarily thinking of men when they drew the divisions. For us females, it's unclear if the same divisions apply. Legally speaking, girls were children under their father's care until they married, and afterwards they were more or less children under their husband's care. It's true that the situation was a little more complicated than that, depending on time and place, but there wasn't a clearly defined, universally recognized stage between puberty and legal adulthood, which is basically the period we now call the teenage years. For some girls... That's because they got married right after puberty, so there wasn't any time for any intervening stage. However, marriage that young was less common than we sometimes assume. In Rome, 12 was the minimum age for marriage, but far more girls married in their late teens. There are occasional comments that suggest girls were not considered fully capable adults at the age of 12 or even 14. For example, Basil of Caesarea said that no girl under 16 or 17 should be choosing to enter a nunnery. Until then, they were not yet mistresses of their faculties enough to make such a weighty decision. As for what it was like to be a girl of that age, well, most of them were already hard at work. But for those privileged girls who didn't have to worry about that, the prime concern was to maintain their virginity until such point as they got married. At least, that is the prime concern of the men who wrote about them. One suspects that the teenage girls themselves thought there was more to life than that, but if so, they haven't left us any written evidence of it. The virginity concern prompted a lot of drastic measures, up to and occasionally including a father killing his unchaste daughter. The idea that teenage girls might well be tempted into sexual activity was ever present in the thoughts of the advice writers. St. Jerome, for example, recommended Simple Food for, quote, How can a young girl be confident of her chastity? If her body is all on fire with rich food. End quote. At the same time that girls were supposed to be fending off men and any of their amorous feelings, they were also supposed to be attracting men and their proposals of marriage. Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, wrote As soon as women turn fourteen, they are called ladies by men. Therefore, when they see that there is nothing else for them but sharing a bed with men, they start to adorn themselves, and in this they place all their hopes. It is right, then, to be intent on making them perceive that they are valued for nothing other than decorous appearance and modesty. I kind of want to throw things at this point, so let's just move on. Among the medical community, there was recognition that this time of life could be tumultuous. As early as the 5th century BCE, Hippocrates mentioned that girls of this age suffered everything from numbness to madness to suicide. He didn't know about hormones. He blamed an excess of blood, and the solution, according to him, was marriage, because pregnancy would cure all of that. At which point, I laughed. Rufus of Ephesus disagreed with Hippocrates, noting that very early pregnancy often led to complications for both mother and child. He suggested waiting five years after menarche for the first pregnancy, which is to say, about 18 years old, according to his own calculations. And so it will go for a couple more millennia. Teenage girls will sometimes be lumped in with children, sometimes with adults, depending on what's convenient for the point at hand. You can see this, for example, in Jane Austen. Jane Bennett became a woman, so to speak, at age 16. That is when she came out, which was the technical term for becoming marriage eligible and a subject worthy of its own podcast episode some other time. Lydia Bennett was already out at 15, And while Elizabeth admits that's a bit young, the real horror from Lady Catherine is not Lydia's age, but the fact that she is out before her elder sisters are married. The implication is that Lydia's status as a child could have continued for years longer because age was not the most important factor. Elizabeth specifically refers to Lydia as grown-up. So she's either a child or an adult, but not something in between. It's true that Lydia is foolish, reckless, self-centered, and short-sighted, many of the qualities we now associate with teenagers. But then again, Lydia is not the only Austen character who matches that description. It's also applied to some who are indisputably adults. In all this time, from Hippocrates to Austen, the word teenager was never used in the sources because it didn't exist. It was actually only coined in 1911, and it didn't catch on. But by 1911, we did already have glimmers of the concept. In 1904, psychologist G. Stanley Hall published the monumental work Adolescence, its psychology and its relations to physiology, anthropology, sociology, sex, crime, religion, and education, in two epic volumes. The book has some absolutely breathtaking statements, like when he says that, quote, bookishness is probably a bad sign in a girl. It suggests artificiality, pedantry, and the lugging of dead knowledge. So that's me and my whole podcast, Skewered. But assuming that you are still listening to my artificial, pedantic dead knowledge, then the point for today is that Hall is the one who informed us that adolescence is a time of storm and stress, his words, and that it's indicated by moodiness, impudence, discourtesy, emotional instability, inebriation, criminality, feelings of inadequacy appreciation for novelty, grossly indulged physical appetites, and spasms of profanity. Really, it all sounds so bad, you do have to wonder why previous generations had mostly failed to notice it. Had something changed? And it turns out that yes, a couple of things had changed, at least among the teenagers a person like G. Stanley Hall was likely to see. The first change was the rise of high schools. High schools are generally considered to be an improvement on the previous educational landscape, but they did have the effect of throwing teens together in a way that they never had been before. Never before had a community of young people been so age-defined. Before high school, teenagers had hung out with their families, or their neighbors, or their co-workers, regardless of what age these people happened to be. So the opportunity for developing a shared youth culture of slang, celebrities, and insolence were far more limited. High schools also allowed adults to see teenagers in aggregate lumps, rather than as individuals. And in my experience, seeing people as aggregate lumps rarely leads anyone to have a high opinion of that aggregate lump. Another change, there had been this little invention called the automobile. The car allowed teenagers to get away from the disapproving glances of their elders. Boys could go off with other boys and cause problems, or they could go off with the girl of their choice. Dating was a term from Chicago's working class in the 1890s to describe a concept that had never really existed before. By definition, dating was away from home and unchaperoned, so teens were able to exercise their appreciation for novelty and indulge their physical appetites in ways that simply weren't available to previous generations. And believe me, the previous generations noticed. In 1912, there was a hit song from Irving Berlin that warned girls to keep away from the man who owns an automobile, for his great delight is to invite a girly for a whirl. He'll take you far in his motor car, too darn far from her pa and ma. There's no chance to talk squawk or balk, You must kiss him, or get out and walk. Lucky for me, 1912 is in the era of audio recordings, and also beyond the reach of copyright, so here is the rousing chorus for you. Keep away from the fellow who owns
1: an automobile He'll take you far in his motor car Too darn far,
0: for your far and far It's 40 horsepower, go 60 miles an hour Get to keep away from the
1: and a news story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts, and remember, don't believe everything you read. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: In the early days, dating was not exclusive. If you were a popular girl, you went on many dates with many boys. Going steady... Was not a term until the 1930s, and even then it was far less formal than the courting of earlier ages had been. Courting had always been aimed at marriage, from beginning to end, but by now not all girls envisioned an early marriage as the pinnacle of their hopes and dreams. Dating, or even going steady, might mean girls just want to have fun. Dance halls pioneered an endless parade of new and somewhat scandalous dances with names like the bunny hug and shaking the shimmy. Girls as young as 12 or 13 attended these, unchaperoned, in the early days of the 20th century. Adults were upset about the pernicious moving picture abomination, too. Boys and girls sitting together in a dark room? Goodness gracious me. In 1909, one critic said, God alone knows how many girls are leading dissolute lives begun at the moving pictures. Movies in the 1910s featured girls who were athletic and adventuresome. They bobbed their hair, shortened their skirts, and brazenly added makeup. Teenage girls eagerly followed suit to the horror of their elders. Girls had always been concerned about their appearance. Remember Epictetus? But by the 1920s, they had an entire industry selling them skin creams and acne treatments to try desperately to correct their so-called flaws. Also, the word boyfriend slowly gained its current meaning. So basically, all the elements we associate with teenagers were firmly in place. They may not have had smartphones and video games, but they did have rebellion against the values of their parents who were way too stuffy and moralistic, even though the real reason their parents had never done these things is that these things weren't available in their own youth. It was in this climate of mutual disapproval that Margaret Mead burst onto the scene. Margaret was a 23-year-old anthropologist. She spent nine months in Samoa collecting evidence to prove her mentor's theory that all this storm and stress in adolescence is produced by modern Western culture, and it is not inherent in the human condition. Upon her return, Margaret wrote Coming of Age in Samoa, published in 1928, and she made the interesting choice of writing it for a general audience Not for academic anthropologists. It was an unlikely bestseller. Or maybe not too unlikely given the nature of her conclusions. She definitely said Samoan girls don't have all this storm and stress stuff. And the reason they don't is because they live in communities of extended relatives, so if they do have an argument with someone, they can just go live with a different relative. No problem. And crucially, because Samoan girls know all about sex, have it casually whenever they want and delay marriage until they feel like settling down. Basically, they have nothing to be stressed about. As you can imagine, reactions to this claim were mixed and vehement, on both sides. And the reactions continue to be mixed, not just on the moral issues, but also on the scientific methods. Margaret's idea of doing immersive research on the ground was groundbreaking at the time, when anthropology was still just a baby science. People didn't do that. But subsequent developments meant that Margaret's methods are now out of date. And questions have been raised about whether any of her conclusions were correct, even about the particular Samoan girls she studied, much less the general culture. Really, it's a whole soap opera, continuing even now almost 100 years later, and the scientists involved in the soap opera are every bit as dogmatic and emotional as Margaret's religious and moral critics always were. For my own part, I doubt that everything in Samoa was as free and easy as Margaret claimed. Even if you can set aside 2,000 years of religious guilt trips on the subject, there is a practical reason why many cultures, not just Christian ones, insist on chastity for girls. The reason is that sex leads to pregnancy, which leads to babies, which leads to somebody having to take responsibility for providing resources for the baby. There's more than one way to handle that problem. I'm not saying there isn't. But when I searched Margaret's book for the Samoan answer to that problem, I found very little about it, except her report that quote, in native theory, barrenness is the punishment of promiscuity and vice versa. Only persistent monogamy is rewarded with conception, end quote. Yeah, so I'm tempted to ask, how's that theory working out in real life? Then there's Margaret's choice of words. If casual sex is A-OK, then why should there be either a reward or a punishment for it? Is that her own cultural baggage peeking through? Or was casual sex not actually as accepted in Samoan society as she claimed? Basically, I have no idea what the lives of Samoan teenage girls were like, but back in the West, the forces that had created teenagers as a group worth noticing were only intensifying. The Great Depression sent record numbers of teens into high school because they couldn't get jobs. Also because child labor laws were finally starting to have some effect. Even so, youth culture dried up a bit in the 30s because teens had little money to spend on things like dance halls and cigarettes. But in the grand scheme of things, the Depression was just a blip in the general rise of overall prosperity, which meant that parents had more money to lavish on indulging their precious offspring. And after the war, business boomed. Jobs were back, and teens themselves earned money. Not necessarily all day in the factory for survival, but at the soda fountain or a department store for pocket money. And pocket money burns a hole. The first magazine aimed specifically at teenagers was Seventeen, which debuted in 1944. And I should say it was aimed at teenage girls. For reasons which I do not understand, there is no equivalent industry of magazines aimed at teenage boys. Seventeen was originally meant to promote a balanced girlhood with articles on hard work and citizenship, as well as fashion and beauty. But let's be real, the advertisers and maybe even the girls weren't really that interested in hard work and citizenship. They were interested in a feminine ideal, one that could be sold, one in which girls could look and feel sexy without actually having any sex naturally. Two months in, Newsweek noted that the teenagers' response to this venture into a hitherto unexploited field, their fashions, hobbies, etiquette, school problems, amusements, and behavior, was electric. The first issue, which featured a 45-photo double-page spread of Frank Sinatra, sold its press run of 400,000 copies and brought 500 letters from readers, quote. Notice how Newsweek doesn't mention hard work or citizenship. Note also that the word teenager does exist now. Though it still needed a hyphen. Advertisers might have rejoiced, but other adults were feeling worried. And I'm sure they felt they had reason. What with the baby boom, the world was about to see more teenagers than had ever existed on the planet before, all at the same time. In 1960, 15% of the American population fell between the ages of 14 and 24. By 1969, they were 19% of the population. It was a veritable infestation of teenagers. These kids had no memory of a depression or a world war, nothing to sober them. They had money, they had cars, they had hormones and moodiness, and when you put that all together in one obstreperous package, the adults got very, very worried. In 1962, J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, wrote a report in which he predicted a serious rise in crime due to all the young hoodlums America had produced. He did not mean merely petty theft or vandalism. He meant savage murder, forcible rape, and the like. He uses far more exclamation points than I ever expected to see in a law review publication. They usually run pretty dry, but this one is downright heart-pumping. Hoover made no particular gender distinction, but every one of his example criminals is a teenage boy. Girls are only present in the role of victim. Which is not to say that adults didn't look askance at the girls, too, what with their miniskirts and their go-go boots. One girl commented that miniskirts were great because they, quote, meant that teenage girls like me didn't have to look like our mothers, end quote. Girls were also the number one group screaming at Beatles concerts. Youth culture may have seemed frivolous, but they also had opinions on everything from war to social justice to the shortcomings of the previous generation. Somehow, the world has managed not to end. Teenagers today are a smaller proportion of the total population, but they still have an outsized influence on culture. Hip-hop, rap, South Park, Taylor Swift, anime, Marvel Comics, all were originally intended for teenagers, and all have expanded out of that age range. And while the negative stereotypes persist, there are also many spirited defenses of teenagers. Even many written by adults, who point out that the vast majority of teenagers get through the period without committing any savage murders, not one, that teenagers are often polite and hardworking, that adults are sometimes moody and rude too, and that really, maybe we should not look on young people as an aggregate lump. But one thing's for sure, having discovered teenagers, I doubt that we'll forget about them again. My sources today are scattered once again, but they are listed on the website herhalfofhistory.com, along with pictures and a transcript. This officially marks the end of Series 11, the history of girlhood, so I will now be going on break to prepare Series 12, the topic of which is... The Last Queen. You have voted, and I have listened, will be going royal. But not all of these will end with a happily ever after. There's a reason these queens can be called the last. Assuming I get my act together, I will have some interim content as well. I hope so, so please stay subscribed. In the meantime, if you have any pocket money burning a hole, please consider supporting the show. The website has links to Patreon, where you can get bonus content, and also to Into History, where you can get access to lots of shows. There's a new one there called Southern Gothic. You can also make a one-time donation on Buy Me A Coffee. All of those efforts are very much appreciated, and if none of them are in your budget, you can still support the show by sharing episodes, writing a review, or rating it in your podcast app. Thanks so much to all of you who have already done so.
1: The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next... My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The SIECLE, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The SIECLE, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England Podcast— where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the fifth century to the Norman conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.